Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name is Nate Davison, and I'm your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode. This one with uh, an author that I think you're going to like. I've read her book recently, and I loved it. It's Dr. Tiffany Yucky Brooks. Uh, she's coming on the show to share with us. I'm going to share a little bit about her, and then we're going to jump right in. Dr. Brooks is the lead or contributing writer on more than two dozen books, including eight New York Times bestsellers. Her newest book, Gaslighted by God, Reconstructing a Disillusioned Faith, was released in May, and she has also published articles in numerous peer-reviewed journals, as well as the New York Archives Magazine and the Smithsonian. Tiffany holds a PhD from Florida State University, where her dissertation covered, in part, cultural adaptations of stories from the Book of Genesis and an MA from the University of Bristol in UK, where her thesis examined cultural influences and literary techniques in the Gospel of Luke. She is currently pursuing a degree in spiritual formation at Portland Seminary, uh, a popular speaker for student groups, faith conferences, and academic lectureships. Tiffany has taught literature and writing at Abilene Christian University, Harding University, McMurray University, and the University of South Carolina, Buford. And we have her on the show today. Uh, Tiffany, you gave me permission to call you that instead of doctor. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And I got to tell you, I was telling you in the pre-show, a big fan of your book. I I did, uh, I'll just say this, I, I did come to it with a little hesitancy because the title, Gaslighted by God, and then Reconstruction of a Disillusioned Faith, I was like, okay, what are we getting into here? But I was intrigued <laughs> enough that I, I read it, and I, I really didn't set it down. I finished it, and I had quote after quote that I pulled, and if anybody's been on my Facebook page, they've seen a few of those quotes, um, and it got me wondering, uh, what, what prompts somebody to write a book like this and how much of your personal story is intertwined in Gaslighted by God? Sure, I mean, I think there are a lot of people, well, what I've discovered in the process of, of writing this book and putting it out there in the world is that there's a very, very large group of silent believers who have been struggling with cognitive dissonance mm. that we've been choking down for years because we don't want to lose our faith community. We don't want to turn our back on our tradition. We don't want to walk away from the church altogether. You know, we love, we love the church. We love our faith. We love God. Um, but we also are struggling with toxicity and bad pop theology mm. um, that has really worked its way into a lot of churches into really a lot of mainstream conversations and evangelicalism. Um, and, but we don't always know how to find each other um, because you, you don't want to be the person who rocks the boat. You don't want to be the person who is saying, you know, hold on. I think this thing that we've been talking about for years that, you know, we've been, we've built our lives around. Maybe we need to reconsider this. Maybe we're not presenting this the right way. And, you know, I know deconstruction has sort of become a boogeyman word. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's interpreted a lot of different ways by different people. Um, 
but I think a lot of us are going through, I mean, whatever you want to call that process, if you want to call it deconstruction, if you want to call it detoxification or wrestling or, you know, reconstruction, whatever that is, it's just that idea of basically running a deep audit on your faith and on your belief system and recognizing what do you really believe is true versus what have you been taught is true? How does that line up with your experience? I mean, the the title of the first full chapter is Reconciling the God of Scripture with the God of Experience. Um, and I think a lot of us are are in that place, but maybe have either been afraid to speak up or we don't necessarily have the words to to capture what it is that we're feeling, but we just know that something, something is not right here. This can't be what Christ was getting at. Well, I completely get that. First of all, I like, I like the deep audit look because growing up in my background, I understand the importance of semantics. What you're going to say is going to be interpreted. Um, I even put on uh, Facebook recently a, a post from Twitter where they talked about, I'm, I'm decluttering. I'm getting rid of some things, but mm. really, if I if I get down to it, I mean, it's the same thing as reconstructing. But when you come from a background mm-hmm. too, where if you ask a question about a standard or an extra biblical standard, a man-made rule, something in the manual, and I personally had this where the instead of answering a question on hey the length of shorts versus the length of skirts, why am I not allowed to wear shorts when a girl is allowed to wear short or skirts to her knees, blah, 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 blah. And the answer was mm-hmm. not, let's talk about it. That's a great question. It was, well, before we go into that, where's your heart at? Where's your heart at yes. on that? What, why are you asking that question? And it's like, well, I mean, I just I thought it was a good question. But now maybe my heart, I, you know, I got to go to the prayer room because I need to figure out. And that gaslighting is exactly what you're talking exactly. about in your book a lot of times. Uh and, and your background, I understand, is kind of like that a little bit, too. Yes. I mean, I now, you know, I want to open by saying I grew up with a really lovely group of people in my home congregation, but I grew up in a tradition that is um, very, it, it's fundamentalist and um, it's very uh, literalist and sola scriptura. Um, we are a cappella in our singing because the New Testament at no point mentions that in, musical instruments were used in churches. Oh. Therefore, we do not use musical instruments in our churches. Um, you know, so so there, there are some of those, those uh, ideas that are really fundamental to our identity um, as, as a religious body or as a sect of, of the Christian faith. And... Um, you know, I respect people who who hold scripture in high authority. I respect Absolutely. people who want to please God with worship. We we should all want to do that. The problem is when we take those ideas and we weaponize them and we use them to build fences around God to keep people out, to keep people away, when we use them to control people through shame. Um, and honestly, when we shut down honest um, dialogue, when we, you know, as you mentioned, like just dissuading basic questions, you know, we should, as believers in truth, we should have no fear of questions because the truth shouldn't, shouldn't scare us. Um, and yet so often we see people who want to shut down any discussion that makes them uncomfortable, that challenges the power structures as they exist, um, or that, that holds any traditions that we've codified as gospel up for examination. 
And that's, I think that's where a lot of the disillusionment comes from in people who are right now sort of in this place of, of wrestling with what they really believe and, and what faith m- means to them. But, and and I, coming to my mind right now, it's not a fully formed question, which is dangerous on, <laughs> on a podcast, but in what we've talked about, that, that earnest questions and maybe not being able to, as a leader in a movement where you don't have all the answers, being brave enough to say, I don't know, um, where in all of that does the Holy Spirit come in? Like trusting the Holy Spirit to speak to people within your church movement without codifying, putting all these rules on them so that we make sure that they follow what we think is the actual way. Right. And where does the Holy Spirit come into what you've gone, the, what you're talking about with gaslighted by God, all those journeys? What's the comparison there of the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, I think what scares a lot of people, so at this point, we need to set the charismatic tradition aside because they, you know, they love the Holy Spirit. They they talk about, so with that notable exception um, in branches of Christianity, I think the rest of mainstream Protestantism, um, mainstream evangelicalism, really probably most of Christianity aside, other than the, evang- or the, um, the charismatic movements, the Holy Spirit tends to freak us out a little bit because I was joking with a friend recently that you, you can't say to someone, hey, the Holy Spirit really prompted me to say this to you mm. without bracing yourself for a weird conversation to follow. You know, like there's just something a little that makes us a little bit nervous about that. And I think I think it's because the Holy Spirit is not pre-vetted. Um, somebody can say, this is what the Holy Spirit said to me, and nobody else can come in and say, no, no, mm. they didn't. You didn't hear that. I mean, somebody can try, but you can't prove that. Um, and so the Holy Spirit is so, it's such an individual experience of God that we're not able to put it through the same academic rigor and study that maybe we do with scriptural texts or we do with, you know, the the, the faith traditions that have been handed down for centuries through these great learned uh, people within within the body of Christ. And so I think that tends to freak us out when as a faith in general, we really like rightness. Mm-hmm. We li- really like to have the right answers and object, you know, this is right, which means that this is wrong. And right for everybody, um, right for everybody. Right for everybody, absolutely. And well, and that raises a whole other issue because whose experience are we elevating as the standard? Because at some point, honestly, now I'm rabbit holing, sorry, but I mean, it tends <laughs> to be white men whose experience is held up as this is the way of the world and anything that differs from this is a deviation from what is quote unquote normal um, without accepting that women may have a different experience in the world. People of color may have a difference. People who have experienced trauma may have a different experience in the world, but we are holding up individual experience as the standard um, and then saying anything outside of this is therefore outside of God's will. But back to, sorry, back, back to your original question though, the Holy Spirit muddies all of that because it introduces nuance. It introduces the need for discernment. It introduces interpretation. And interpretation implies that it's not being delivered to you as a whole complete package, but has to actually be filtered. And all of those ideas, even though we we deal with them every day with faith, they make us a little bit uncomfortable because they're not quite as objective and provable the way we we like faith to be. But the irony, of course, is that, you know, what's our biblical definition of faith? 
You know, it's the trust in what is unseen. So we can't prove faith. Faith itself is not object objectively provable, but we still, we want it to be. And the Holy Spirit can't be verified or vetted in that way that makes us comfortable. And so that muddies a lot of those conversations or tends to make us feel a little more um, nervous. Like, okay, I don't know where this person's going with this. Well, and I think there's another side to it too, because there has been use of that, um, and rightfully so, as a, as a preacher is preaching under anointing, saying, you know, Lord, speak through me. But when you have someone saying the Holy Spirit or God is telling me to talk to you about the length of your sleeve or talk to you about the standard, you know, then you're like, okay, well, that's not what I'm hearing. I don't mm -hmm. guess I got the Holy Spirit because I feel like right. if God cared about that so much, wouldn't he tell me to um, and pre prepare me right, for that? Right. Um, so it, As, or, or the slightly unhinged, perhaps, street preacher who mm. we see yelling or ranting about something, you know. So obviously, like, there do, there, there need to be boundaries, you know, we, but yes. that's where the gift of discernment comes in. Um, but again, it's just, it's, you can't, because we can't control it. And things, we love. We love control in Christianity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it, it just tends to present some challenges that, that don't have easy answers, but that doesn't mean that we should disregard them either. I want to circle back to uh, your your rabbit trail because I actually liked it in a way. Um, the experience of females versus males in in uh, Christianity is is different, um, as with mm -hmm. most things. And I can already tell there, there may be some listeners who listen in for different reasons who hear what you say and like, oh, here goes another woman talking about white <laughs> men. But understanding, I mean, you're an expert on, on different, we talked about the Gospel of Luke, we talked about your work on the book of Genesis. Um, it's my understanding, I mean, you were even a, a, a guest on Jeopardy, so you're somewhat of a, an expert on, uh, you know, <laughs> basic trivia in life a bronze medalist let's just put it that way <laughs> well, bronze medalist that's a medalist uh and so um yeah no but so you're an expert in all these things but how and, and all these things from christendom so how has the church received you as a woman uh putting <laughs> you on the spot i know but how's the church received you uh kind of talking about these things teaching in general um, what has your experience been like that as a, as a woman who is actually an expert in these things? Okay, so let me open this by saying that the book itself, Gaslighted by God, I actually take a very took a very deliberate um, tack in writing that the book does not go political. A lot of books discussing deconstruction do pull political. Absolutely. I specifically avoided that because I wanted to have a book that somebody could read and hand hand to their grandma or hand, hand to their dad or whoever and just say, this is where I am. Like, please read this and understand this is what I'm feeling. And to feel that they could do that without making that individual feel like, well, you're just making me read this because you don't like my voting record. <laughs> you know, you don't like my party affiliation. Or, so I, I, I want to put that out there before we kind of veer into this conversation um, because I don't get into this as much in the book or really at all. Um, but so I grew up in a, in a uh, denomination that women did not have leadership roles, could not have leadership roles. And I just accepted that um, because, you know, a fish never asks what's water. You know, you, your perception is your reality. And so this is, you know, that's simply how it was. Um, but a few things sort of stood out to me that that shifted my thinking on that a bit. One was I was overseeing a lock-in when I was in graduate school and a woman asked one of the teenage boys to, you know, calm down a little bit. And he said to her, um, you don't, 
have authority to tell me that in a church building mm. as a woman. And for a 15-year-old boy to, and of, I, you know, of course I recognize that's not universal, but if we fostered a culture that, that allows that kind of thinking, that in itself is a little problematic. But really the biggest thing for me was um, I was uh, teaching at Florida State and my husband uh, was a military officer and he was deployed overseas. And um, my church was uh, having some small groups. And the, the model we followed was that whoever hosted um, would provide dinner and then teach the lesson for the small group. And it was my week to host. And the a concern was raised that who was gonna teach the lesson because my husband wasn't going to be there. And what added insult to injury to that was the fact that what we were studying was actually a text that I had worked on in graduate school. But I was being considered not qualified to teach it simply on the basis of having a uterus. Mm. Um, and at the same time that that was going on, um, I was teaching The Sun Also Rises in my literature class. And I was standing in front of the classroom and we were talking about the fact that the title comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. And the thought suddenly hit me that I have more freedom to speak about my faith in my secular college classroom than I do in my own church. Wow. And I mean, I just remember standing in front of this, this lecture hall, just gobsmacked for a moment when the reality of that and the implications of that hit me. Um, and then that, that really sort of led me on a, a you know, a, a journey um, that took me in, you know, in some different directions, um, because that was, that was a, a, a tipping point for me in realizing that maybe the faith that I had been taught uh, was unquestionable, but the, the ideas that I had been told were, you know, just absolute truth when they were really held up to, to examination, may, maybe we needed to think about some of these differently. Well, and I, I, I feel your, your, your heart there at the end where you're wanting to make clear, like one of the things I hear from people a lot as, as I'm going through things is, you know, make sure you go back to scripture, make sure you stay with scripture. And I'm like, I, I never left scripture. That's not something I walked. That's the first thing I went to trying right. to understand right. and work through and actually do hermeneutics, which is very, very hard, mm -hmm. especially when you haven't had original <laughs> Greek and Hebrew. So you're going to other people uh, who have that knowledge of the original and, and trying to figure that out. Um, and I think I'd like to give you an opportunity to define what you mean by reconstruction um, a little bit for sure. people with that, because is it just a desolate throw away everything. Let's start from scratch and uh, build from here uh, some postmodern um, ideology here. Or, or what, what? when you talk about reconstruction, uh, just before we go into kind of why the title came about, what do you mm -hmm. mean by reconstruction? The first chapter of the book, I actually talk about World War One, And I talk about the great cultural upheaval that it was for the Western world. Um, <clears throat> that, you know, you had all these young men, generations who have been raised on the idea of the glories of war. And they read these great classical, you know, Greek and Roman epics about, you know, how war was just this golden, wonderful thing. And then they went to war and World War One is really considered the first modern war. You have machine guns, you had airplanes used, you had tanks, um, <clears throat> you had all of this modern mechanized warfare. And suddenly it took the humanity out of it. You weren't looking your enemy in the eye before you drove them through with a sword if you could mow them down with a machine gun. And 
the the injuries were on a scale that had never been seen before. Um, and the the idea of almost becoming an extension of the machine um, really impacted um, the, the, the mindsets of, of so many of these men. And now, of course, we recognize it as PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. But at the time, it was considered shell shock, or it was called shell shock, and it was considered actually cowardice, and it was thought to be um, contagious. And so if one soldier got shell shock, um, then it was worried that they could infect the entire ranks with this mental disease that they had. Um, and so these individuals would be court-martialed for uh, cowardice, and a number of them were actually executed um, for what we now recognize as a natural human response to a highly stressful tra traumatic um, event. From that, the, the men who returned felt that when, when they came back to their society with the stories of what they had experienced, um, people either didn't believe them or didn't want to hear them. And we see this theme in a number of, for example, Hemingway's works. Um, and they were called the lost generation because it was thought like, you know, they're just, they're so disillusioned, they're so detached, they didn't come home you know, like singing of the glories of, you know, the glories of the king or the glories of America and, and celebrating the, the beautiful goldenness of war. These people said that wasn't our, that wasn't our experience. That wasn't our reality. Um, and the resulting cultural movement from that is what we call modernism. Now, it had started just before World War I, but it really, really picked up steam in, you know, say the teens in the 1920s was modernism. And it was this idea of basically we blew up all of the old ideas and now we're taking the pieces and sifting through the mud and deciding what, what do we reassemble? What makes sense? And to turn that into a mosaic of something new. You know, postmodernism, you know, people love to talk about, oh, well, the church is postmodern now. Well, postmodernism really doesn't have a lot of fences or meaning. I think it's actually more modernism, which is this idea of looking at the rubble of what, not necessarily what you have intentionally destroyed, but what has been destroyed by your experience, what you can no longer deny is reality. And looking that, at that and saying, what is, what can I still hold on to and be true? What do I still believe is right? And a lot of people will say, well, the, or critics will say, this is creating God in, in your, your own image. Sure. But it's not because... This is saying, what can my soul accept? And that may, you know, that may mean saying, you know, there are some uncomfortable truths that I'm going to have to grapple with. But it's wildly dishonest to tell someone, well, just fake it. Just pretend that you believe. Um, because that's, that's not what we're called to. And so this is what deconstruction or reconstruction does, excuse me, is it is telling people, to look at the fragments of your faith from whatever your experience, your disillusionment, whatever that is, however that has destroyed your faith. Okay, what are your basic truths? What are the basic things that you can say, this I believe, this I am sure of? And those are your building blocks. That is the foundation then. And then the rest, the, the rest of the bricks, you've heard it compared almost to, to Legos. You know, you have to set out your, your bottom foundational bricks. You can apply the other pieces as you go, but reconstruction needs to be rooted in just the, the simple set of, okay, 
I may not know about all these other things, but I do know that these things are true. That is the, the, the framework, that's the, 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 the foundation for everything else that you're going to rebuild as you sift through the rest of these blocks. But you've got to start with your most basic core beliefs. And I think that's where you know people freak out sometimes because they think they have to have the whole thing figured out, but it's not, it's a process. You just need to start with figuring out, okay, do I still believe in God? You know, and ho hopefully that's, that's yes. But like that needs to be your basic foundational question. So then you can build on, yes, I still believe in God. Okay, good, good. So we can start from there. Okay, how do I understand Christ? How do I, and then that allows you to then move through. You don't have to have a complete belief structure ready to drop into place. That's why it's reconstruction. It is a process. Well, I th listening to you um, clarify that, I think we would give anybody the benefit of the doubt who comes from, and I'll use the term that most evangelicals would understand, come from the world. Um, mm -hmm. You have no, if you have no church background and you're coming to God, mm -hmm. you know, well, the foundation thing, I think it's in Hebrews where it says, he that comes unto God must believe that he is. That's, that's a foundation. Yes. So, and I think you said it in your book too, if we offer this kind of, just as I am uh, to to the sinner to come to the altar to come to Christ. Absolutely. Why not offer that to the individual who has been disillusioned, who uh, exactly. is coming for uh, the first time with questions and maybe has some like mm -hmm. you know I I feel like I've been on autopilot for the last three decades of my life. Um, what do I actually believe? Uh, and instead of gaslighting as you say that individual why not say yeah let's let's ask the questions what questions do you have bring them on because what you're talking mm -hmm. about when you're explaining reconstruction what i hear from you is just a faith journey it's just a conversation absolutely. with god it's just a uh, absolutely well and i think that's one of the challenges is that we've reduced faith to to something you either have or you don't have it's a binary you have it or you don't have it but that's not what faith is Faith is, it's a journey, it's a conversation, it is engagement, it is something that we continually do. But we have we've really simplified it to you have it or you don't. And so for people who are struggling with a lot of these ideas and saying, I'm not exactly sure what I believe about that right now, or I'm, I'm wrestling with this, then they're left with that question of maybe I don't have faith. And so if I don't have faith, then I'm out. And so if I'm out, why don't I just walk away from the church? Mm. Like, cause if I'm out, I'm out. And that's, that's why I think one of the reasons why I think so many people are leaving the churches right now is because we haven't allowed this room for nuance, for exploration, for questioning, for faith to be a process rather than a binary. Well, even more than that, faith to be a relationship instead of Absolutely. A, a monopoly board where, oh, back to get, do not pass go, do not collect 200. Darn it. I'd messed up Absolutely. again. I have to start over and I am I am once again a baby in faith and I am starting from the beginning when really yep. you continue to mature. If you would ask more questions, you would mature and move from what Paul calls milk to meat, uh, you know, Absolutely. that we're supposed to do. Um, so I want to take you further for the, the gaslighted by God, because we talked about mm -hmm. the reconstruction, disillusioned faith. So why such a controversial title? Because it sounds like you're saying God yeah. is gaslighting people. Why that title? Well, so the problem isn't God. It's the narrative that we've constructed around God that too often utilizes language of abuse or manipulation. 
you know, so for centuries, we've had all these iterations of like, we're nothing without God, we'll never be enough on our own for such a worm as I. And okay, like, yes, it, you know, humility is an essential part of faith. But when we have promoted humility to the point of dehumanizing people or degrading people, um, we've turned it into humble yourself on the side of the Lord as if there's some big sky bully that just wants to humiliate and enslave us. Not that we ought to feel awe and wonder at the presence of the creator of the universe. Um, and so this title actually came from a conversation I was having where I blurted out, I feel like I've been gaslighted by God. Um, and as I said it, you know, like I knew, whoa, that's kind of a risky thing to say, but it captured this feeling that I was having of my experience with God was not aligning with what I was being told um, was the God of scripture. You know, I was being told, well, if you do this, then God responds this way. Well, I did this and God didn't respond this way. And so that means either something is wrong with me, which is usually what we say, well, then there's hidden sin in your life or you did it or maybe this God that we've been taught through these narrow agenda-driven interpretations, you know, that, that are based on someone else's standard, maybe that God is not accurate or complete or, you know, not, not the, doesn't capture the fullness of who God is. And so I relied on this title. I decided to go with it because this is a book for people who are so broken down and shell-shocked and soul-tired that they can't bear the thought of picking up another book that tells them that they just need to pray more or study more or trust more or carry more guilt about their sin, and maybe then God will finally listen to them. Mm. Um, it's not a book that promises, you know, and this, I say this in the book, you know, that it's not a book that promises that if you just squeeze a little more Jesus on the situation, it'll get better. But that's what I was running into every time I turned to sermons or Christian books to read. It was all came back to the same thing of, well, you just need to trust and pray more. And I thought, but I'm doing that. And it's not turning out the way you're saying. So what, what else is happening here? What else is going on here that maybe we need to consider? And what I found is that I was not alone. I was not the only person who was dealing with this same response to my faith, my experience of faith is not aligning with what I was told to understand it would be from scripture. Well, you're not alone for sure, because what you're saying right now resonates in that. So as you're talking about it, the formula isn't working, like you've worked the right. formula, I've done my part. Okay, God, you have to do this because obviously yes. it's like putting God in a box, mm -hmm. a formula box, um, exactly. And then as you talk about, well, then wait, it must be me. I haven't done something on this side of the formula. Well, it reminds me of an emphasis as I grew up hearing about Achan and hidden sin mm -hmm. and how he mm -hmm. took things he wasn't supposed to yep. and buried them. And we saw how severely God dealt with hidden sin. He killed not only him, but his whole family. And uh, I think you addressed that in the book. That That's where my mind mm -hmm. is going. Yep. So if that's how God deals with sin, then obviously you you must be the problem each time in your experience. Right. It, it, if it doesn't align, it's you. It's got to be you. And that's what Job's friends tell him, right? They're always saying, well, surely there's secret sin. Surely there's something you forgot to sacrifice for. And look how God deals with Job's friends. You know, like that should be a cautionary tale to us that maybe we shouldn't be pointing the finger. We shouldn't be constantly accusing people 
if their experience doesn't align with what we think it should. Well, and if you don't know the answer, sometimes the best thing that you can do for someone who's going through that amount of pain is just be with. Don't try to figure it out. Just present. be Exactly. Uh, and, and you may have had something similar, but I don't know that they really need to hear about your journey right now and how it all worked out right. because they're reaching up to touch rock bottom and they think that in some instances God is against them or has left them or isn't for them or they're, they are, as you say, disillusioned. I mean, that, that is exactly right what you're saying, because I think one of the challenges is that so often the stories we hear in Christian communities, are it, they're all about, and then this is how God came through with the miracle at the 11th hour. Mm, yeah. But what happens when you're in the 11th hour and your miracle doesn't come? What does that, what does that communicate to you? If all our stories about God end tied up with a neat, happy bow and yours doesn't, then that tells you that God maybe didn't see fit or didn't care or didn't hear you or was angry with you. And so unfortunately we've turned in trying to encourage people with stories of God's goodness and that is wonderful. Um, we have also then set up an expectation that's not always going to come through. It's miraculous because it was unexpected. It's, you know, that th that ending, we remember that because it stood out from all the other times when deliverance didn't happen. It's an outlier. And what do you do with that? And I think those are the Christian stories that we need to be sharing of, okay, this is how you persevere when deliverance doesn't come. And you can still hold on to your faith after that. And you have the Paul. Uh, we still don't know what his thorn in the flesh was, but he's a great example of saying, sure. yeah, God, God didn't even mm -hmm. answer me on this. So like, yeah, it's a he, great point. He didn't yeah. answer me on this and I still had to continue, but oh, I, I know we got to move on because there's a couple more things I want to get to. <laughs> um, but I would point people to, to read your book on this further. Cause this is a whole episode in itself, what we're talking about. And that chapter, I forget the, the title of the chapter where it was, but you talking about when, when God seems to be uh, either not there or a part of our pain or causing our pain, or we grew up in like, God is a, making this happen to me for a reason, to help me. The old uh, refiner's fire, he's turning me into gold. And like, why would God be mean to me? There's a whole lot there in that chapter um, that, that people just need to get the book and look through where there's a suggestion that maybe God might be independent of of your pain and be there with you alongside. So there's a concept there I want people to go to. But moving on because of sake of time, because I could talk forever, forever uh, when we talk about uh, in the book spiritual abuse, religious trauma, all sorts of things like that, mm -hmm. you also talk about spiritual anxiety. Um, and even recently I've, I've read on on some, some pretty... Uh, well-known uh, Christian authors, speakers, talking about how anxiety is a sin. You need to trust God. If you're not trusting God, then the heaven forbid mm -hmm. you try to go to the pills for this uh, and you know seek mm -hmm. uh, a, a professional to help you. But with this, can you go more into the concepts and the impact, the growth, the development of a, of a person's faith around this concept of spiritual anxiety and maybe start with a a retort or a response to those that might say anxiety is a sin and spiritual anxiety sure. is the cardinal sin. <laughs> so actually, um, I'm going to share this with you. Um, I'm currently working on a follow-up to this book about spiritual anxiety. 
So um, it'll be out, should be out spring of 24. I'm sure there will um, be a lot on scrupulosity in there, I'm sure. There sure will. Absolutely. So yeah, I do want to put out, first of all, for any listener who struggles with this, there's a wonderful book called Understanding Scrupulosity. Um, it's actually by a Catholic priest named um, Thomas Santa, but spelled like Santa Claus, um, Thomas Santa. Um, but he, uh, it's wonderful, whatever your uh, branch of Christian faith, because basically it's just talking about what you do with this overactive sense of wanting to get it right, wanting to do right. You're driven by a deep desire to please God. Um, so to me, and there are so many ways you can take this, but first of all, um, I really push back against the idea that, um, you know, something we hear a lot in sermons is, well, you can't trust your emotions because that's trusting in the flesh. Um, you've got to trust in God. Um, okay, but our emotions come from God. Like, the idea of an emotionless God is unimaginable. You read scripture and God is full of wrath and joy and, and you know, happiness. God is full of emotion and we are made in God's image. Our emotions are, are given from God. Um, but what comes along with this same idea is that we're also then told that our intuition is sinful because that's trusting in the flesh rather than trusting in God. And, and that causes people to then not trust themselves rather than saying, maybe my gut, maybe my intuition is a gift from God to protect me, to keep me safe. We're thought, nope, nope, I've got to disregard that. I've got to, I've got to push that away because that's sinful. So that's, first of all, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Your intuition is a gift from God. So if you have been brought up to ignore it, um, that is going to introduce a number of, of challenges. Um, but beyond that, um, people with spiritual anxiety, if they voice concerns, it tends to be treated in one of three ways. Either it is brushed aside and just said, you don't need to worry about that because you know, you're fine, you're saved, you don't, you know, you don't need to be concerned about those things. But what that's doing is telling this person, your lived experience doesn't matter. This thing, this worry that keeps you up at night, that makes you cry when you're alone in the shower, that doesn't matter, that's nothing. And so the message is that's nothing, therefore you are nothing. So that's one response that people tend to get that is problematic. The second is to say that's sinful. Because if you were truly saved, you would know the peace of God. And so if you don't have the peace of God, what does that mean about your salvation? Well, what that does is tell this person, it creates shame in that person. And it sets a shame cycle going that they're already, they already feel shame that they don't feel this peace or this joy or, you know, the, the, this calmness and serenity in things. And then if they're being told that's wrong, then they're saying, yes, so something is wrong with me, which means I need to work on it harder, which brings them back to, it's, it's turning that screw a little bit deeper. But then the third one that I think is really uh, especially challenging is that it's sometimes praised because the person who is spiritually anxious is extra fastidious, who tries extra hard, who is extra pious, and then that behavior is celebrated. Look how much that person prays. Look how much that person throws themselves into the life of the church. Look how hard that person tries. And so what they hear is, this is good behavior, I need to do more of it. But when it's rooted in anxiety, all it does is then um, encourage those anxious behaviors to increase. And so what we're actually doing is then feeding the anxiety rather than helping to relieve the anxious person. And that is, 
that is such a challenge for somebody who's dealing with these feelings when they're rooted in their religious beliefs because spiritual trauma, or excuse me, spiritual anxiety is a trauma response. It is the brain looking at a trauma response comes from the brain evaluating a situation and saying something doesn't feel safe here and I'm gonna react accordingly. And when you're exposed to that for a long period of time, it becomes a learned behavior. And so when someone is exposed to condemnatory messages um, that, and again, this isn't denying the reality of sin, but to the, to the harmful shave, shame-driven messages, when somebody's exposed to that over and over, their brain then starts to respond in a way that is designed to protect them from that, which can be this highly anxious, always worried, I'm always worried about sin, I'm always worried about displeasing God, I'm always worried about losing my salvation, um, which can then result in them living in this spiritually anxious state. And so we can do it to ourselves, essentially, in churches. Um, and I just, to explain away people's genuine concerns with just like a few Bible verses is that's to, to imply that their faith isn't valid or it's not complete or it's not like that is a message that merely confirms to them that they're not good enough. And too often it seems a lot of people treat religion like a bandage. And, and this is something I say in the book that they can just slap on someone else's situation to stop the bleeding and cover the wound and consider it first aid as if a human soul in turmoil is merely suffering from a sacred paper cut. You know, and, and again, that's taken right from gas. But but that's the truth. Like, that's how we treat scripture sometimes as, as an easy answer. Like, just repeat the scripture enough to yourself and that'll take care of it. But if we don't get to the root of what is causing this pain, the gaping wounds of hurt and confusion, then that fear is going to continue, that that anxiety is going to persist. Well, I understand. I and just gave away half my next book, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, uh, well, that's I think, the important message that people need to hear, I think, about these ideas and well, be aware of. If you elaborate from there, I'm I, I'm looking forward to that book. But I, could, I resonate with that because growing up, and I know there's others just like me because we've talked about it, including my sister Amber, um, going to bed at night saying, well, here's my prayer. Um, I don't know if I did anything wrong, but I don't want to go to hell while I sleep. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and do a sinner's prayer real quick. And uh, anything I forgot, go ahead and forgive me for that too. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, and you're doing that as a kid. And like yeah. that's a yeah. learned behavior from your environment. Mm -hmm. That's not something you that's come true. out of the womb like, okay, well, sin is a part of my life uh, and this bottle. Uh, so like it, it doesn't pair that you, it's a, it's modification exactly. from your environment that you grow up in. 100%. And part of that, that you, you kind of touched on is the legalism aspect of it, which yes. I've learned uh, through some interactions and I want to represent people well, that legalism does not mean the same team, same thing rather to all people. Um, mm -hmm. a, a strict adherence to God's law sounds great. Um, but when I'm talking about legalism, I'm talking about a strict adherence to man-made rules. Um, so mm -hmm. I've kind of made that change. And you address a little bit of the legalism in the book. Um, and I want to yeah. get your take on it. It's a major touchstone for a lot of people involved in religious deconstruction as well. So how did you approach uh, that topic and come towards legalism uh, for, for Gaslighted by God? So the way I understand legalism is that ultimately it's a form of control. It's an attempt to control the behavior of other people by restricting their choices or causing them to live in the fear of making a wrong move. But it's also an attempt to control God 
by forcing God into a position of obligation. Because I did this extra credit, because I went this much farther above and beyond what you commanded, therefore, applying the formula, you are now obliged to bless me. And we can talk about legalism and say it's a problem and say it's not great and say, you know, it's something we shouldn't have in our churches, but it feels a whole lot grosser when we think of it in terms of trying to control God. But ultimately, that's what it is. It is trying to use our behavior to put God in our debt. Well, and I think you mentioned that kind of as a, a alternate prosperity gospel in a way. Like, yes. certainly we wouldn't say, yep. you know, what others are saying in these mega churches, blah, 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 blah. But actually we're applying it in the same way where as long as I do the work, that's the caveat. I've done the work. So now you got to bless me. It's not just a gift. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly it. And like you said, I like I really hold it up as it is a type of prosperity gospel. If I do this, then God must do this. And so we've set it up as an if then proposal. And that's not that's not what faith is supposed to be. That's not what our relationship with God is supposed to be. And, you know, I examine um, several stories in scripture that I think pull this out. Um, we look at Jonah through this lens. Um, we look at a story in 1 Samuel 14 through this lens, and we really break these stories down and parse them through a lens of legalism. Um, but what I think is so significant is that, you know, you, legalism generally is, is expanding the definition of sin, right? It's expanding what is wrong. But Jesus did that. Jesus expanded the definition of sin, but he did it always to protect the other person rather than to elevate the individual. So when Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, um, that's the same as adultery. Like you could say, well, see, that's legalism. He just expanded that definition. He made it more, but what he did was he did that to, it, to honor the other person. He's honoring that woman. It says like you carry anger in your heart is the same as committing murder against your brother. I mean, every time Jesus did that, it was, about elevating other people. He was telling his followers to take the weight of forgiveness, of self-control, of temperance, of fidelity, of love upon themselves, and not to pass that burden on to other people. Wow. But what legalism does is it passes that burden on, on to other people. It says, you have to do this. And what Jesus is saying is, you take that extra burden upon yourself. Well, and that's what Jesus did. He took the burden of our sins upon himself. Part of what I'm hearing you say there is just basic boundaries in that someone who, um, and I'm no expert here, it's just some things I've learned along the way, but uh, someone that, that is is controlling and manipulative, a lot of times they don't see boundaries well and they don't see boundaries of other people and they crash over those boundaries and tempt, attempt to put the load of their own, um, whatever it may be, onto someone else. So that's a, that's a mm -hmm. way of carrying your burdens to put it on someone else. The onus is then on someone else, but that doesn't yeah. follow boundaries very well. And I hear that through Absolutely. what you're Something saying. Something I say in the book, I'm sorry, I didn't need to talk over you, I'm sorry. Fine, go I'm ahead. Just, I'm, I'm fired up. <laughs> I love it. No, but something I say in the book is that it's okay, if somebody has done that to you, it's okay to say, you know what? This, this burden isn't mine. You can have it back. I put it down, I'm not carrying this any farther. That's okay. 
that's healthy. I think Dr. Henry Cloud would uh, sit and, and clap for you there where he talks in his book <laughs> on boundaries of, yes, you. one of the fundamentals of boundaries is understanding when and where you can say no, and it's healthy, and it's part mm -hmm. of who you are. Mm -hmm. Because there is a point of enmeshment where if someone is reaching in and trying to control you, through your environment or what they say or utilizing your faith or God, they're now working towards enmeshment, which is not healthy, trying to figure out where you end and someone else begins. Boundaries are so important, not only to your life, but your faith journey as well. Uh, Absolutely. One, one more question on, on, on uh, uh, legalism, because I had someone that went back and forth with me a little bit, and uh, I believe wholeheartedly that they're sincere, uh, but they mentioned that legalism and I want to represent this well, legalism, we're actually called to as Christians um, to strictly adhere to all of God's law throughout scripture. And I tried to explain, you know, my difference and what legalism may mean, strict adherence to man-made law versus God's law. And uh, so could you walk, they, and they mentioned Matthew chapter five, where, you know, we're mm -hmm. to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Um, and we need to go beyond even what the Pharisees uh, have done, where they have you know, added laws to make sure they adhere to laws. And, and Jesus did say that, make sure that we're, we're doing more uh, in order to get into heaven. But we can't. Uh, we can't be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect because we can't be the moral equivalent of our Heavenly Father. I don't want to get your, your take on that a little bit, as there are some that believe that we are called to legalism. Uh, and having addressed that in your book, what's your thoughts on that? Okay. What does Jesus say are the two most important commands? Uh, love your neighbor as yourself and... Um, uh, mm -hmm. And yeah. love the Lord your God and with all your heart, yes. soul, mind, and strength. Okay, Off so question. he says... Sorry, sorry, didn't mean to put you on the spot there. But yeah, so he says, the, you know, the most important command is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second... And he says, the word he uses, homo, meaning the same. He says, and the second is the same, meaning it is just as important. And it is love your, love your neighbor as yourself. And all other laws come from these two. Mm. So every law that we have, every bit of legalism that we had needs to run through the filter of does this honor God and does this show love to my neighbor? Yeah. And so if your legalism that you feel that you are called to does not honor God and does not show love to your neighbor, then I think you need to take another look at how you're understanding that law, how you're applying that law, and whether that's really what Jesus is calling us to do. And that, that would be the basis that I would use for evaluating um, or, or responding to that question. Okay, if you feel you are called to legalism, okay. But if we take Jesus's word seriously, then we need to run everything through the filter of does this show love? And not necessarily, not love that we twist around to say, well, because I love this person, I want to keep their soul from hell. I'm going to say horrible things to them. But love, what Jesus showed, ministering, healing, touching, eating with, spending time with, getting to know, comforting. Does it pass that test? I love that. That's that's a great way to to talk about it because I, I don't think there's a great answer just in the time that we have to address that. Because you, you, 
you literally wrote an entire book about it and you're continuing <laughs> to write another book about it. Yeah. Oh my, I'm looking up at the time. We're, we're, we're over time really. Um, and I want to be respectful of your time, but, uh, I have so many things we didn't actually get to. Um, but what I would do here is, is, um, uh, first I, I want to ask you a question. I have a, a follow up question, but where can people find okay. you or about you? Where can people find mm-hmm. your book, um, and, and access more of what you have to offer? Great. Yeah, you can find me online. Um, it's uh, TiffanyYeckyBrooks.com. Yecky is spelled Y-E-C-K-E, but also because I know that that's kind of tricky. Um, if you also just put in Tiffany Brooks, PhD, it will also take you to that site. Um, I'm also, you can find me on Facebook under the same name. Um, I'm actually in the process. Um, just in the next couple of weeks here, I'm going to be launching a new Substack with a bunch of good stuff. Very excited about where that's going. So, um, Find me, follow me on Substack. We're going to be getting some really neat new new stuff out there with new projects. Um, and then, you know, yeah, and then you can just, you can find the book at your local bookstore or um, online bookstore, wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we'll put some of that in the show notes so that people can, if you're okay. listening right now, just scroll, right, scroll down to the show notes, tap into that and you can click on a link and, and find out more about uh, Dr. Brooks here. So as we come to a close here, Dr. Brooks, um, tip, Tiffany rather, um, if there's something you'd, you'd, you'd like to, I'd like to give people the opportunity to talk directly to the listener here at the end. And if you have something you'd like to share, maybe we've already talked about it, you want to reiterate or advice for people that are working on, maybe they don't want to call it deconstruction, they're calling it decluttering, sure. or as you said, which I like, a deep audit of my faith. If there's people that have resonated with something you're saying and they're going through that, um, what's what's something that you would say to the listener from Tiffany? I'd say if if you're struggling with whether this is something you're allowed to do or that you're allowed to admit that you're doing, because that's that's a whole different thing. You may be in the middle of it and not you know not feel comfortable with the fact, not want to admit that you're you're going through it. Jesus was a deconstructionist. Jesus challenged the religious, the religious traditions, the re- religious leaders of his day. And he said, we've, we've made this into something it's not supposed to be. And there are a lot of toxic, controlling, damaging, unhealthy beliefs and practices that we're doing here. And we need to work on those. And that's what I would encourage you to hold in your mind that you are doing holy, sacred work and don't don't think that you are somehow a lesser christian um because you are maybe challenging or questioning some of the ideas or traditions that you were brought up with because that is what that's what our faith is founded on it's founded by on someone saying we can do better we need to do better so just remember that remember that you are doing holy work and that this if we are called to be christians or little christ says christian then let's be little Christs and let's call out problems in faith that are keeping us from loving and honoring God better. I love that. That's, that's beautiful. Um, and, uh, I know your time's valuable. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Dr. Brooks for, for sharing with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And to you, the listener, uh, I encourage you just like Dr. Brooks said, Continue in your restoration journey. Uh, make sure you know you're not alone. Uh, like I say, there is no us without you. Uh, so we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. We hope to see you then. Um, 
it don't become just bogged down in the minutia. Find people to talk to. Uh, this is about you, and uh, we hope we'll see you more in the coming weeks. Until then, we'll be praying for you on your journey of restoration.